If you'll take your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. And as you do so, I want to recognize Mario. Um, Mario has been a faithful member of our church for some time. He's faithful to the greeter ministry, and this is Mario's last Sunday. Uh, he'll be moving to Nicaragua. Uh, so please, make sure you, uh, uh, you send him off. Let him have a hard time of getting out of the building. And uh, Mario will be back to visit, and we look forward to those times as well. Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Father, thank you for preserving your word for us, and thank you that you've allowed us to sing under your praise, and uh, we do pray that, uh, that our worship has been acceptable uh, with our heads and our hearts and our, and our tongues all one. And, and we also look forward now to your Spirit illuminating your word, uh, that you would touch every heart, for those that may be salvation, they may need to see that they are under condemnation, they need Christ. And for the Christian who may lack assurance, may these, these truths be foundational in leading to a life of assurance and confident Christian living. And so, Father, we thank you for the privilege of an open Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It was 1858. In the middle of the Atlantic, in the steamship, Austria had caught fire. Um, having spent a lot of time at sea, fire on a ship in the middle of nowhere is not a good thing. Well, the Austria sank. She sank in the Atlantic, and uh, within the quick time that she was uh, uh, sinking, 400 people died. One survivor told how he and five Christian friends stood between the fire behind them and the water before them. They agreed that at the end they would leap from the sinking ship together. When the time arrived, they joined hands, they looked at each other, and just before jumping into the cold waters of the Atlantic, expressed their assurance that in just a few minutes they would all meet in heaven. What assurance. What confidence in the midst of dying. And yet that is what every Christian is to have. It is normal Christian living to have assurance. Donald Whitney, uh, he has uh, defined assurance as this, quote, assurance of salvation is a God-given awareness that he has accepted the death of Christ on your behalf and forgiven you of your sins. It involves confidence in that God loves you, that he's chosen you, and that you will go to heaven. Assurance includes a sense of freedom from the guilt of sin, relief from the fear of judgment, and joy in your relationship with God as your father, end quote. Every child of God longs for that. Every child of God longs to live with that rock-solid assurance of their salvation, that rock-solid assurance uh, that they are in Christ and thus in Christ forever secure. And we live in a world today of uncertainty. We live in a day uh, of great fear uh, that people are paralyzed. And so the gospel becomes very important for us, not only uh, for our own assurance, but to give the world hope. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Colossians, uh, he would tell that was a burden of his heart. 
In Colossians chapter 2, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen my face to fa- see me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance. The assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. And so as we enter into one of the great chapters of the Bible, Romans chapter 8, it is a book, uh, I should say a chapter of assurance. Its theme is assurance. And last week we identified uh, the outline, if you can outline this difficult chapter, we identified seven assurance building truths that will set the foundation by which we can live a confident Christian life and give the world the message of the gospel with assurance and with conviction. And well, we want to now go back and look at those seven statements, and we're going to take each one and work through our way uh, to do this. And the first one is found in the verses that we read, verses 1 through 4, and it deals with our position and our standing uh, with God. Our position and our standing with God. When you read the Apostle Paul, you read a gospel minister. You know that. He understood that when he was arrested on the Damascus Road, he was given a lifelong commission, and that was to be a minister of the, of the gospel, the message of reconciliation. But let us also remember that Paul was a Christian. And as a Christian, he was a gospel-centered man. He wasn't just a minister of the gospel. He was a gospel-centered man. Is that You can't read any of his letters without seeing the gospel uh, coming forth in various different uh, explanations or, I should say, even in the beauty of the gospel. And that would be the case in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. He is giving us a beautiful, detailed work of the gospel. Now we know that in 1 Corinthians 15, we get, uh, we get the gospel, Jesus came, that he died, that he lived, he died uh, according to the scriptures, he was rose according to the scriptures. We know that that is the very simple definition of the gospel. But here in chapter 8, 1 through 4, we see the gospel in, in, in its depths. We see God sending his son in flesh for sin. Uh, we see the believer because of the gospel in Christ. And we see the believer because of the gospel free of condemnation. So when you read this chapter, understand that the thesis of the chapter is verse 1. The very thesis is, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to unfold in such a logical and a methodical way to build assurance in these believers. And as you read the book of Romans, and I hope you are, that you'll find that chapters 6, 7, and 8, those are the substance of the, of the practicality of the theology that comes forth in the first five chapters. Some have said that Romans 8 is the greatest chapter, and there are those who would argue that Romans 5 is. And Romans 5, because it's the great doctrine of justification by faith. And what you're going to see here today as we work our way through uh, this text is we're going to see that Romans 8 is is really an explanation or even an exposition of Romans 5. And that Romans 6 and 7 has been viewed as a parenthesis that comes between and that you could actually have linked Romans 5 straight to Romans 8. But God in his wisdom He's given us Romans 6, 7, and 8. So Romans 6, 7, and 8 is actually the practical way to live Romans 5. 
is that Romans 5 is the doctrine of justification by faith. And Romans 6 and 7, uh, 6, 7 and 8 is the outflowing or how the Christian is to live. So always view that. Look at that Romans 6, 7 and 8 on the backdrop of justification by faith. Because Romans 6 says, well, because you're justified, you're in Christ. Romans 6, you died with him, you rose with him. Romans 7 says, now, at least you don't think you live on the Mount of Transfiguration all the time. you got to go through the pain of Romans 7. And then from Romans 7, you're back on the mountaintop of Romans 8, which is the assurance of the believer. And so we start then with the first treasure from Romans chapter 8, and that is our position, our standing in Christ. Romans 8, verses 1 and 2, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now the two thoughts here that Paul unfolds, the two dominant thoughts in the thesis statement are no condemnation and twice he would mention in Christ Jesus. And so we want to take those in order. And if you're struggling with assurance today, and if you're just... Excuse me, you're gutting it out as a Christian and you're struggling with assurance. This is your foundation. You know, yeah, obviously Romans 8, 28 through the, the, the golden chain. But here is where you will be able to weather the storms. Here's where you'll be able to, you know, as, as the waves come up on you of doubts and fears and the devil's accusations, here is where you will be rock solid and you will find your comfort. It's in your standing with God, no condemnation, and it's your position before God, and that is in Christ. And those never change. Despite the wavering emotions you may have, despite the wavering experiences, despite that you may drift down a prodigal trail, those two will never change. Your standing before God and your position uh, with God will never change. Now, for the unbeliever, and there may be some here with a crowd this size, if you've never come to Christ, and I'm not saying uh, that you're religious and that you've tried religion, if you've never come to the point where you know that you're under condemnation, that you are under God's law, that you have broken his moral law, that you are a sinner and you have no uh, hope whatsoever, I've got good news for you. You can leave today in this standing with God, in this position before God, and you don't have have to stay under the wrath of God. You can be freed from that because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And that's what he would tell us in, in 1 through 4. So let's take a look at our first one. The first one is our standing before God. So what is our standing? If you've come to Jesus Christ, if you come to him, you know, as poor in spirit, you mourn over your sin, that you are broken, and you know that you have no hope of salvation, no hope of reconciliation with God, and you believe that he lived, that he died, that he rose, and that that substitute is for you, this is your standing. This is who you are. And you say, well, Jim, I've just had a rough week. I haven't read my Bible for three days. I've yelled at my wife. Uh, I've, yelled, uh, I've, I've yelled at my husband or, or whatever. I'm just, I'm not really in a good place with God. Well, no, you may not be in a good place experientially, but you're in a good place in his standing. And that will never change. He says, you are under no condemnation. Now, the word therefore, that's important. And every time that you come to a therefore in the Bible, you need to find out why it's there. And this therefore here, it serves as a pointer. It brings a summary that will point us back and then to a conclusion or a result. And so the question would be then, where does this therefore take us? 
How far back does it take us? Well, there's three, there's three possibilities, which I personally think that they apply, all of them. The first one is that therefore it takes us back to the conclusion of Romans 7. In Romans chapter 7, you know, verse 14 through 25, uh, Paul is talking about the power of the law of, still, of sin still causing the Christian problems. And every one of you that are Christians are striving for the Lord Jesus and striving to know him and to live a holy life. Uh, you are saying deep inside of your heart, amen, I know Romans 7. I know that I don't understand my own actions. What I do not, what I do, not do I, what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Woe is me, wretched man that I am. You know that as a Christian. And so Paul would be saying, therefore, just because Romans 7 is your current experience and just because you may feel like the spiritual lights are out and you can't understand, remember this, therefore, there's no condemnation. So the power of the law of sin that still dogs the Christian, the therefore no condemnation would apply to that. Do not ever do a self-evaluation or never uh, examine yourselves if you're in the depths of Romans 7. Because you will always get it wrong. Never, never do examination when you're spiritually depressed or you're in a deep trial or something's going on in your life and you feel the presence of God is far away. Never do evaluation. Always evaluate yourself in light of 6, 7, and 8. And the first and fourth thing, thing is to say, hey, listen, I, I, don't, I don't even know if there is a God, but I know this. I have trusted the promise that Christ Jesus has given me and I cast myself upon what God has said, and thus he has said that I am under no condemnation. That will rule the day, even in the darkness of Romans 7. So then we could apply the therefore to that. We also uh, could apply the therefore, there is no condemnation, all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Because what happens in 117, all the way up to 321? Paul methodically and logically brings every single person, Jew and Gentile alike, under condemnation. As no one's escaped. No religious person's escaped. No Gentile complete ignorance. The Jew cannot boast of having position because they've received the oracles. None of that. So that therefore it could go back to all of humanity. And that everyone is under condemnation except for those that come in Christ. So then we see those two possible applications. And the third one would go back, as I mentioned in the introduction, to Romans chapter 5. Because if indeed Romans 6 and 7 is a, uh, is a parenthesis, or a parenthesis then, then we can go back to Romans chapter 5. And what does Romans chapter 5, verse 20, 12 to 21, tell us? That we are justified in Christ and there's no condemnation. And that condemnation appears in the book of Romans in only three places. It appears once in, in Romans chapter 8 and it appears twice in Romans chapter 5. Justification appears in Romans 5. Justified appears in Romans 8. So there is a connection to these two. So we could take the therefore back to Romans chapter 5. But at any rate, whoever you are and wherever uh, spiritual condition that you are in, if you're outside of Christ, then you are under condemnation. And you need to run fast to Jesus while well, you can on the other side, if you're a Christian and you're not in Romans 7, uh, you still have been delivered from Romans 1.17 to 3.21. So no condemnation applies to what you used to be, as well as Romans chapter 5. Well, then what does Paul proclaim of us then? 
Because he's talking to us who are in Christ. What is he talking? He says that there is what? No condemnation. What does that mean? What is condemnation? You don't hear a lot of that nowadays. I don't know the last time I've heard a sermon uh, in listening to various people uh, sampling uh, sermons around, um, uh, around the country or so. I, I don't know when's the last time I've heard uh, the word condemnation or the word sin or the word repentance or the words God's wrath. And yes, so what is condemnation? It's connected to divine judgment. Is connected to divine judgment to include the passing and sentence of execution. Is it once a person is condemned that that's the sentence has already been upon them? They're just awaiting execution, and that's the state of everyone outside of Jesus Christ. So, if you're not a believer, and I'm not talking a believer in Christ who just acknowledged Jesus lived in history, I'm talking about a believer who has cast their entire being upon the person of Jesus, and they live for Jesus. That's the person who is saved. That person uh, outside of Christ, you are already condemned. And you are already sentenced. You're just awaiting the execution. And so I pray that you would avoid that by running to him. As I mentioned, the word appears in Romans chapter 8 and twice in, uh, in chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5 verse 16, judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. There we see the connection of condemnation and judgment. I don't want you to get this impression that when you die, you stand before God and he's going to judge you and he's going to look at all the good that you've done and all the bad that you've done and that's going to determine the sentence or the location of where you're going. That's not true. That is religious humanism. Is, is, is the, 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 the sentence, or I should say, where you're going to spend eternity is determined in this life. When you die, that's sealed. You will wait then for the execution. Outside of Christ, it'll be a place of willing and gnashing of teeth. In Christ, you will enter into the place of eternal bliss where we'll be free from Romans 7 forever and ever and ever. Now, as we look at the comparison between chapter 5 and chapter 8, we see in chapter 5 there are two humanities. Those in Adam under judgment and condemnation. Those in Christ are justified and under no condemnation. And those two truths apply in Romans chapter 8. So it's very, it's very safe to say that Romans 8 is a wonderful explanation of Romans chapter 5. In Romans 8, 33 through 34, we get the truths of that. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, Romans 5. Who is to condemn, Romans 5. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the God, who is, who is interceding for us. That implies no condemnation, which would be Romans 8. Jesus would also tell us in the dialogue with Nicodemus, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There are, um, there are three things that are the greatest greatest things God could ever say to a human being. These are the greatest and the most comforting statements we could ever receive from our God. The first one is this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.3. Then the second one is this, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. And the third one is this, is the very thing that he told the woman caught in adultery. And neither do I condemn you. 
Those are assurance-building truths that come from our God. And the woman caught in adultery, she hears, she hears Romans 8, verse 1. She didn't know what it is, obviously, but what did she hear? There's no condemnation. And friends, that's how we must see ourselves if we're a Christian. I've harped on this for a long time because I missed it so much in my Christian life. You can never gauge your spirituality by your activity, by your service, how much you read the Bible, how much you don't read the Bible, how much you pray, how much you witness. If you begin to gauge your standing with God, your position with God based on your conduct, you are going to be absolutely miserable. Because you can't measure up and I can't measure up to everything. For instance, let me ask you this question. How many of you have actively obeyed 25 one another commands this week? 25. There's over 50. Okay, so what if I said everybody that has not obeyed 25 one another commands, please get up and leave right now. Don't, don't do it. So... Don't do it because I would be with you. But it, as, as much as I make light of that, I want you to think of this. How many of you have obeyed five one another commands this week? Love one another. Carry one another's burdens. Encourage one another. That's three. We don't measure up. We don't. And so when, when the DNA of sin, which is selfishness, Paul David Tripp said that, when the DNA of sin is operating in full-blown in the life of the Christian, the one another commands are rarely thought. They are rarely practiced. And as a result, then, you can't gauge your, your standing or your position with God by your obedience or even your disobedience. That's why Romans chapter 8 is so important. Because our standing before him is that of no condemnation. And what does that mean? That means that all the things... What about that woman caught in adultery? You think that was the first time? Probably not. You think that she had a pretty rough life? Probably. What about the woman caught in a well? Caught, what about the woman at the well? She tried to find satisfaction in human relationships, like five of them. And what about her? The woman at the well, the woman caught adultery, got the greatest things, one of the greatest things that they could hear. There's no condemnation. If you're a Christian today, God tells you that there is no condemnation to though if you're in Christ Jesus. That means gone is your past. Your sins of today are forgiven. And your sins that you're going to commit tomorrow are also forgiven. Octavius Winslow said this, Sin does not condemn him. The law does not condemn him. The curse does not condemn him. Hell does not condemn him. God does not condemn him and never will. Friend, that's the source of your joy. The source of your joy is not how well you service, serve the Lord or how much you know. Your source of joy is what God has done. It's what God has done in your life because of Romans 8, 1 through 4. It is the work of the gospel. And God says because of the gospel, there is no condemnation. My wrath on you has been expired on my son. My son has also propitiated. 
and my son now stands and you stand in him so that I can look at you and I can say to him, my beloved, and I can look at you and say, my beloved. (laughs) Isn't that shouting ground for the Christian? Isn't that what fuels within you this, this desire to love him with all that you have? Isn't that what intensifies your hatred for sin? Isn't that what causes you to want to have other members of your family, your friends, your neighbor, to come to know this glorious gospel? Well, we move into verse 2. So there we have the standing. The standing is that we are under no condemnation. It is gone, forever gone. Friends, Christ doesn't have to go back on the cross. Friends, he doesn't have to agonize in Gethsemane anymore. It was one and done. It's an abomination to think that we have to re-crucify him every week. Is that he did it once. And the father was satisfied with what he did and what he did once. To condemn the son so that he could look at me and look at you and say, you believe in my son and you're not condemned. And so if you're here today, you need to run to that son who took your condemnation so that you could have the heavenly father, the creator, look at you and say, no condemnation. Well, then how is this standing achieved? What had to happen? God just cannot say, well, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, Forgive them all their sins. I'm just going to just wipe it clean. There had to be something. And Paul would tell us in Romans 2 and 3, it continues in verse 4, the reason why. But in 2 and 3 says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. I want you to think of the term set you free. Set you free is exactly what the dynamo power of the gospel does. It sets you free. And there is no other, no other source of power or no other um, religion that offers and gives to us this freedom. And it comes from what? The law of the spirit of life. That is a wonderful definition of the work of the, uh, of the gospel by the spirit. That's what that is. It's the law of the spirit of life. Sets you in free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And that is a parallel back to 7, chapter 7. When you see the word law, you need to think of something that regulates you. Something that uh, controls you. He already told us wonderfully uh, leading up to this that the law in the life of the sinner has a controlling power, puts a sinner in bondage that they can't get out of. You, are, you have the handcuffs of the law upon you and you don't have the key. The law comes to you. The law is good. The law is God's standard by which we're to have relationship with Him as well as with human beings in the perfected uh, standards that he ordained and what happens is we can't keep that law but it doesn't make the law bad and just because we can't keep the law doesn't remove our responsibility for the law we still are responsible for the law why did Jesus have to live the, the, the 33 years he had to fulfill the law theologians call that his, his act of obedience We'll see that in verse 4. 
But this, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. And as I mentioned, in, as an unbeliever, you are under the law of sin and death. Now, when he says the law of sin and death in chapter 8, we could take that in back in chapter 7 where he said the law of sin. He said the law of sin, it occurs a couple times in verse 25 and also 23, I'm sorry, as well as in verse 25. And the activity of the law of sin is that it works through the body, the body of death, which it is called in chapter 7. And we know that the wages of sin is what? It's death. So when the Spirit of God pens the law of the Spirit in contrast to the law of sin and death, he is showing us that verse 7, or so I should say chapter 7, it's the same. It's the law of sin. And the law of sin carries with it a death penalty. If you're not a Christian today, you know what you are? You are the walking dead. You are walking physically alive, but you are spiritually dead. You are a walking dead. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they became the walking dead. And then we have just a, a chapter or two over, we have the, the, the physical consequences that almost every verse ends with, and they died, and they died. That's pretty morbid. And they died, and they died. And all of us are going to die too, because that's the wages of sin. But there is an eternal death or a second death for the unbeliever. And so when Paul would say that the law of sin and death, it is restricted to just the temporal, because the first part, the law of the spirit of life, has set you free, that is not temporal. It applies in the temporal, but it also is for the eternal. And when you read the law of the spirit of life, then what you're looking at, the contrast of what is dead to what is, has vitality, has life, and that's the new birth. How does the new birth, how does a person become a Christian? It's by the work of the spirit. And if law is defined as the controlling power, then we can read verse 2. For the controlling power of the spirit of life has set you free. You know what the greatest and the most powerful act of God of all time? It's not Genesis 1. It's not, and God said, let there. You know what the greatest display of God's power is? It is Romans 8.2. It is the new birth of a person. It is conversion. It is the radical nature of new birth. And friends, as a Christian, I've talked to non-Christians a good little bit this morning, but for the Christian, you need to read verse 2, so for the law of the spirit of life has set you free, and you need to ask the question, am I free from the law of sin? That's exactly what he's saying. There's a contrast. You say, what does that mean? Since you made profession of faith in Jesus Christ, have you seen a radical change in your life? Has Jesus become precious? And has your whole life, as you progressively grow, has your whole life begin to orbit around Him? And that your small world of me, my, and mine continues to be obliterated. And He begins to elevate to where everything about your life, your decisions, your use of your resources, the use of your money, the use of your time, the use of everything becomes under the lordship of Jesus. That is what it means to be free. Free from yourself that you might be walking in the freedom that he grants you. Jesus says that the truth shall set you free. And if I set you free, you are free indeed. 
And the greatest experience you'll have as a human being is not walking in the, in the sinful desires or the worldliness, the temporal things. The greatest freedom that you're going to enjoy is what we read in, in Romans 8, chapters 1 and 2. Uh, I'm sorry, verses 1 and 2, is that you are no longer on, con, under condemnation. You can walk and you have a skip in your walk because you're with God in a right relationship that will never change and that the spirit of life or the power of the gospel has set you free from the enslavement of yourself. And your greatest enemy and your greatest, your greatest foe in the spiritual life, it won't be the devil. It won't even be the siren songs of the world. Your greatest enemy that you face every day is the person you greet in the morning in the mirror. That is the person that will bring you back into the law of sin. You won't lose your salvation, but you will certainly lose the joy of your salvation. And so Paul would tell us that this standing of no condemnation is because of the work of the gospel, the law of the spirit of life. And remember what Jesus says, it's the spirit who gives life. So if you're a Christian today, take some time and thank God for setting you free. And thank him for setting you free from you. The gospel in its very essence is God saves us from himself, for himself, by himself. So that we would be free from self. That's the essence of the gospel. And I see a lot of Christians and, you know, none here. Uh, I see a lot of Christians. I don't see joy. I was meeting with a pastor a Friday, and we were talking about these very things. And uh, it's always good to get with someone outside that's a colleague, and you can share things and talk about things. And, and we both come to the conclusion that we have the best vantage point in our churches every Sunday, is that we get to look at all of you. Now, I know you look at me, but you get to look at all, we get to look at all of you. And I, said, I asked him, I said, Brother, I said, do you, ever, do, you notice, do you notice the joylessness in Christians? He said, Yeah. He says, there's a lot. He says, it's not only for, in the people I look at, but it's the people that they're looking at. And I thought, it's true. And so ask yourself the question, how's your joy meter right now? How's your joy meter? It will depend on how much you believe and you're trying to live out Romans 8, 1 uh, through 4, the gospel that has set you in a standing of no condemnation and that is the spirit and the power of the gospel who has set you free from your very self. And, and that's the basis of assurance. He's building assurance starting out with the thesis of knowing who you are and knowing that you're standing. Because if you don't have that right, then how are you going to apply the rest of Romans 8? How are you going to be able to rejoice when all things are said to be good but they don't feel good? You're not going to be able to do that. You can't start on Romans 8, 28. You've got to go back to Romans 8, 1 through 4. And you've got to make sure the gospel is what's governing your life and shaping your thinking. And so Paul would say then in verse 2 that the first way that this, this standing of no condemnation is achieved, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. But notice also in verse 3. In verse 3, we went from verse 2, it's by the power of the Spirit. Verse 3, uh, it's also by the person of the Son. The Spirit of God does the work through the person, the work even of the Son. Look at verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness 
of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. I, I want you to focus just on one word. The word own. O-W-N. And I want you to think about the pathos that's in that. I want you to think the deep level of affection that is in that. It's like John, 6, John 3.16. The two little word, letter, two words, so. What if you took that out? For God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world. Do you see the intensity of affection that comes from our God? And the intensity is geared upon love for his son. He says by sending his own son. He was willing to fracture that fellowship and and condemn his son so that you and I would not be condemned. And the Spirit of God could not set us free from ourselves unless the Son did what he did. God sends his Son, not in sinful flesh, that he wouldn't be a Savior, but in like form, in human form, to die our substitute without sin. In our converse, my conversation, and the reason why that we concluded that there are a lot of joyless Christians, because we don't daily remind ourselves of the splendor of the gospel. I don't think about the gospel. The gospel isn't, well, Jim, get saved and then put it on the shelf and bring it out when it's time to get someone else saved. That's not the gospel. The gospel sets me free from me so that I could live in harmony with my God and that every day I need the gospel. How can I possibly, how can I possibly quiet the voices of condemnation from conscience and from the devil if it's not by the gospel. If the gospel done it first to save me, then I need the gospel every day. And so the question would be to you. Beloved sheep, here's the question to you. How often do you think about the gospel as a Christian? There was an artist who once drew a picture of a winter twilight. The trees were heavy laden with snow and a dreary, dark house, lonely and desolate in the midst of the storm. Try to picture it. You can see it, this howling storm, and there's this dark cabin in the middle of the woods. It was a sad picture. Then, with a quick stroke of a yellow crayon, the artist put a light in one of the windows in the cabin. The effect was magical. The entire scene was transformed into a vision of comfort and hope. As if the cabin lit up and for all those weathering the storm, it was saying, come, there's refuge here, there's treasure, there's comfort here, there's protection. Friend, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's what our Lord Jesus accomplished for us. Our lives were the darkened house. And he comes by way of the cross, by way of the empty tomb, to light that, light that light in our hearts so that you and I would be beacons of hope. Ye are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the world. Remember this, Christian. Jesus says that you are the salt and light of the world. You are not to be the salt and light of the church. Now, I'm not saying we don't shine on each other. But this isn't just a club. This isn't just us getting together. We're going to talk about that tonight. We're going to talk about leaving a Christ-honoring legacy. And part of that is is that we bust out of this everything Christian 
And we become that light to a world around us that's under condemnation that we're able to say, let me tell you about the one who lights the light. Let me tell you about the one who can take you from being condemned to not being condemned. This is what Jesus did. Remember, he comes into the synagogue and he grabs the, uh, he's been given the scroll of Isaiah. He went into the synagogue and he stood up to read. Can you imagine all the people? Who is this man? And he stands up. He unrolls the scroll. And he starts reading, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set all liberty those who are oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Can you imagine the bruised reed and the smoldering wick? Can you imagine sitting in the pew and you're weighted down with sin? You feel like Christian with a burden on your back and all of a sudden you hear this. You start thinking, hope, light, no condemnation. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So Paul would unfold the gospel by way of assurance. Our standing, no condemnation. How's that standing affected? How is it? It's by the power of the Spirit taking the person of the Son and what he did. Friends, remember this. Emmanuel is not just Christmas. Emmanuel is not just Christmas. Emmanuel is not an ornament that we take out of the box late November and, and we hang him, hang him out there and we get through December and we sing the songs and then we put him back in the box in January and we go about it till next year. Emmanuel, God with us, is every day. The personal work of Jesus Christ was a work that took us from no condemnation so that we could walk in reconciliation that we would walk knowing this glorious God who said that my spirit will work my gospel in you so that you indeed can walk, as he would say, according to the spirit. And we'll unfold this as weeks ago, as the Lord allows. We're going to see what the spirit-led life is about and how the mind is important in this. But it all starts with understanding what the gospel has done to us. It's placed us in the standing of no condemnation. Now look at verse 4. We're going to wind this down now. Verse 4. So how is this standing obtained? There's no condemnation. It was the work of the Spirit of life through the work of the person of the Son. God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That wasn't just for a moral example, though He was. It wasn't just for being the greatest teacher who ever lived, though He was. It was so that he could hang on a tree and be condemned so that you and I would never be condemned. Why is this standing granted? Look at verse 4. In order. Here's the conclusion. It says, Paul says, there's no condemnation. That standing is achieved because the spirit of life has worked in you. And he did that because Jesus did this. And so why? He says this, in order that. In order that the righteous requirement of the law. Well, what's the righteous requirement of the law? It's two. One is the complete adherence to God's law. That means total obedience. And if anyone wants to say, well, I'm pretty good, like the rich man. I, you know, I keep the commandments. Now, let me tell you this. You can get to heaven without Jesus Christ. 
But from the moment you're born to the moment you die, you have to keep God's moral law perfectly without one time breaking it, not only externally, but in your thoughts. Does anybody want to raise their hand and say, that's me? No, you don't. See, this is part of it. In order that, the righteous requirement of the law had to be fulfilled. What was the righteous requirement of the law? Complete adherence in life. That refers to what I said, the act of obedience to Christ. He had to obey the law. Because I need his fulfillment of the law credited to me. Because I'm still bounded by that law. You can't actively, you can't correctly preach the gospel without law. You have, to, you have to include the law. We are still law keepers. The difference is in Romans 7 is now as Christians, we delight in the law. And there's a second righteous requirement of the law. The just penalty for the broken law had to be paid. That's called passive, Christ's passive obedience on the cross. Now quickly, looking back, uh, I told you there's two main themes here. This will only take a few minutes. Two main themes in verses 8, 1 through 4. The first one was our standing, no condemnation. Then the second one was mentioned twice, in Christ Jesus. It's verse 1 and verse 2. We could spend months preaching on the union of the believer in Christ. It'd be a worthy study. We're, we're not, but we, we, it, it would be very good. I encourage you to study it. It's been, very, it's been very edifying as I've studied this thing. But this takes us to our position. What is your position as a Christian? Your position is that you are in Christ. You are sealed in Christ. Well, how is, how is this position, how is this, this position achieved? What was it for? And what is the implications of it? Quickly, this is a Trinitarian work. And again, we're not going to go into details of this, but I want you to think about you as a Christian being in Christ, because Paul would emphasize this throughout Romans, throughout all of his letters. I believe I told you last week, there's over 164 times that he would refer to this. That was his definition of a Christian, being in Christ. Now, now the practical applications of, uh, implications of that is profound. That means you're never, ever separated from him, so be careful. Guard your holiness. That shouldn't scare you. That should cause you to be wise. You should understand that you're never alone. In those times of, of, of pain and darkness, you're never alone because he's in you. So the implications, if more Christians would think about, I am in Christ, we might have more joy. Calvin said, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless to us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours and dwell within us. Three things, three things about this glorious truth of our position in Christ. Number one, this, this, this position was achieved by the Father. The Father gave a people to Jesus. You didn't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be in Christ. You didn't wake up one morning and say, well, you know what, I'm just going to become a Christian. The Father in the councils of eternity has determined that he would give a people to his Son. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in Christ with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world. There is a basis of assurance that can cause you to really weather any storm. Knowing that the Father gave you to Jesus. And that was long before you were even around. And why did he give this? Why did the Father give the Son of people? As grace gifts to the Son. John 17, 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that the also whom you have given me. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he mentions at least six times all that you have given me. Think about that. Do you see yourself as a Christian? Do you see yourself as a grace gift? You say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty messed up. Well, yeah, we are. But grace knows that. And the Father knew that even before, even, even when he picked you. And he gave you to his son so that you would, be, you would be a grace gift to the son. And here's the staggering truth. Jesus is not ashamed of us. There's too many times that we've been ashamed of him. But he's never ashamed of us. He said, I'm not ashamed to call them brethren. Why? Because every one of you, if you're a sheep in his pasture, every one of you has been given in a covenant of redemption from the father to the son. That's assurance. He gave you to the Son. He's not going to take you away from the Son. Jesus says that you're in my hand and you're in my Father's hand. And no one will take you out of our hands. Here's the third thing. The reason why this position in Christ, what Paul would say, that builds assurance, is that we're given by the Father to the Son. And the purpose of it is for His glory. Everything is for His glory. Even your assurance is for his glory. He wants you to ensure, he wants you to enjoy him. Love the catechisms, love the questions and answer what is the chief end of man, you know, to glorify God. We need to spend more time on the second part of that and to enjoy him fully forever. And that's why we're in Christ, to enjoy him, to magnify this gospel. And to walk as assured Christians so that we can magnify this gospel with confidence. May God help us to see the depths of the gospel. Our standing, our position, that sets the foundation for a life of assurance. Father, thank you so much for loving us and being our God. And thank you for no condemnation. We're so unworthy of, of such a standing. And yet, in your magnificent grace, your love, your mercy, your wisdom... You've made a way. And I pray that if there's someone here that is still outside of Christ, that they don't, that they're under condemnation, please let them run to Jesus. Let them not be afraid. Don't let pride or peer pressure or the world keep them uh, from running to him. Enable them to believe. Give them faith. Give them repentance. And if there's ways that we can help, then please let us. And Father, for all of us, that we would understand more and more the tremendous freedom we have in Christ because there's no condemnation and that we're able to walk with confidence sharing a gospel of no condemnation. In Jesus' name, amen.